Let us pray. Almighty God, come and fill us with your Spirit. Enlighten our minds, renew our hearts, and direct our wills that we would love you, that we would pursue you, that we would think of you rightly. Help us, O Lord, to receive your word this day and to be changed according to your will, that we would know our Lord Jesus more and more deeply. We ask this all through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Ashley Knoll, the Cranmerian scholar, that is, the theologian and scholar who knows the most, it seems, about Thomas Cramner and Cramner's theology, he said that according to Cramner's anthropology, that is, his theology of man, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind does not direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants. And the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. The trouble with human nature is that we are born with a heart that loves ourselves over and above everything else in this world, including God. In short, we are born slaves to the lust of self-gratification, that is, concupiscence. That's why, if left to ourselves, we will always love those things that make us feel good about ourselves even as we depart more and more from God and His ways. Therefore, God must intervene in our lives in order to bring salvation. I know many of you here have heard me use that quote from Dr. Null. Many people attribute it to Thomas Cramner, but it's a little too tweet-worthy to be something written in the 16th century. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Over the years, for me personally, this has been a revolutionary thing to think about. That at the foundation of my actions, of my thoughts, is my heart and what it loves. The affections of my heart determine everything else about myself. That's radical for me to think about as a philosophy major in college or a one-time philosophy major in college anyway, that it's about the heart, it's about our desires, it's about our affections. That it's not about getting the right thoughts in the right place in order that our hearts then would love rightly and that then our hearts tell our bodies what, or our minds tell our bodies what to do. We always tend to think here in the West of the rational mind guiding us in everything that we do. But what they understood in older days was that there is something else inside of us guiding us, directing our wills. And Cramner hid upon it, just as I think St. Paul has hid upon it in this passage that we're reading, and anything we read from St. Paul or anything else from the Bible, that what the heart loves, our will chooses. And what our will chooses, the mind justifies. The mind thinks on, the mind proves that that was the right thing to do. The heart matters. What the heart loves actually matters. Your affections matter. Our affections aren't merely our emotions or feelings about things, but affection is much deeper. It's our commitments. It's those things that shape us, 
the ideals that shape our very being, and not just ideals, but people and things that we have around us that we commit ourselves to. Those things that we stake our very being upon are what are going to determine our actions and determine our thoughts. And here Paul hits on this in our passage today when he says, don't live any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Due to the hardness of their heart, their affections are directed away from God. They're turned inward and they have become hardened because they have not loved God but have only loved themselves or idols. Their actions led to the worship of idols. And that worship of idols and those sins that they have committed led to the darkening of their minds, that they can't see through the cloudiness that they have created around them by their actions and by their loves and affections. And that's where the Gentiles are trapped, and that's where we were once trapped ourselves before Christ came in, before He affected us, before His Spirit took hold and laid hold of our hearts and changed our hearts and renewed us and made us into new creations. New creations that had a heart that loves God. New creations that through that loving God with our hearts can then act properly, can then act toward God with joy, with worship. And then in that acting toward God with joy and worship, our minds are transformed more and more because we are worshiping and drawing near to this very God who has renewed our hearts. It's a strange thing to think about our heart mattering that much. For someone who's like me who's loved to spend time in my head, it's hard to understand how my heart shapes everything I do. But that's the very heart of Scripture itself, that our hearts have been turned inward. When Adam and Eve sinned, their hearts turned from loving God to loving the knowledge they were pursuing, the knowledge of good and evil, to loving themselves to where they turned against one another. Adam blamed Eve and ultimately blamed God for the sins that he committed. Eve blamed the serpent. No one wanted to take responsibility for themselves and say, I didn't love you, Lord. I didn't love you, my Father, the way that you created me to. And let my heart be tricked and deceived and turned away from what you had taught me to do. Our hearts have to be reshaped. Our desires have to be reshaped in order that we would act and think well. And that is where the Gentiles struggle in this passage. They don't have hearts. They are callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The Gentiles left to themselves, Paul described in Roman, Romans 1, they were idolaters. They were sexual adulterers. They were immoral in every kind of way. Not only that, but they worshipped creation instead of the Creator. And they were wicked toward one another. They hated one another. They were greedy. They were covetousness. They were covetous. They were liars. They murdered and enslaved one another. All of those things flow out of a heart that does not love God. All of that flows from a heart that does not trust God. 
And that is where these Gentiles are. Paul isn't saying this to say we're better than them. He's just simply describing the situation that they are in. But then he turns to the Ephesians and says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, that you are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is telling the Ephesians that they have been taught not to live out of that old life, that old man, that old heart, but they have been taught the way of Christ, that they put off the old self, which belongs to that old way of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. Right there, the foundation is the broken heart. Those deceitful desires continually corrupt their actions and corrupt the former manner of life. And in putting off that old man, they then put on the new man. You don't do one without the other. When the old man comes off, the new man must be put on. It's all one action. We don't throw off the old man and get to run around naked. If we're trying to do that, then we're still wearing the old man without realizing it. We're still living out of his thoughts, living out of his behaviors, living out of his loves and his desires. We're living out of those sinful inclinations that are part of our broken human nature. But because of what the Lord has done for us, our minds and our being is changed. Our heart is renewed and the old man can be put off with all of his deceitful desires, and the new man can be put on that has been completely and thoroughly renewed, beginning with that new heart that the Spirit creates and places in us that can love the Lord, which then leads to right action, which then leads to right thoughts, the renewal of our minds as the Spirit indwells us more and more and lays hold of us, turning our hearts more and more toward Jesus that we would be created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the calling of what we have been given, to be renewed completely. And that word renewed there in verse 23 I think is neat because it means in other times it has a sense of rejuvenation and restoration. That is something that once was right is brought back. So you could say that there's a sense when Paul talks about the renewed, the renewal of our spirit, of our minds, is that he is seeing the original nature of man that has been lifted up and brought back to the forefront through the work of Christ. Mankind in our original condition was not a sinner, but we were righteous. We were lovers of God. We found joy in our Father in heaven. So much so that we all remember in Genesis that they walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening. But then sin entered the world. Adam and Eve sinned and their hearts became darkened. Their minds became darkened, their actions became darkened, and they became sinners. But here Paul says that through the work of Christ, through the work of the Spirit and what we have been taught, we put off that old way of life and we are renewed in the spirit of our minds, that original way of being that original way of loving is brought back into our lives as our hearts are renewed and rejuvenated and restored to what they were supposed to be to begin with. Hearts that can lay hold of God. Hearts that can lay hold of who He is and love Him for what He has done. 
And through that renewal of our hearts, which leads to the renewal of our wills, which creates the renewal of our minds, we can put on that new man joyfully. We can lay hold of that new man. We can own the new man as our own. For he is us now. Though the old man is still lingering, he still fights. The new man is the positive side of getting rid of the old man. As I said before, by default, we should be putting on the new man when we take off the old man. Because we have to be replaced. We have to have something in the place of the old man or he's still there. He has to be pushed away and fought against and replaced with the reality of the new. And it is God's joy to bring that new man into us that we can put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God, returned and restored into that original image of God that man had. That Luther liked to emphasize being found in that righteousness and holiness that Adam and Eve simply had by means of being created by God. Luther would also often talk about how we lost the image of God in the fall. It's because he was thinking of the image being linked in with that righteousness and holiness that we don't have. And so in that renewal and that new self, Paul can talk about the fact that we are created after the likeness of God because true righteousness and true holiness has been restored to us that Adam and Eve once had at the beginning, that they once had in creation itself. And all of this is the groundwork that Paul wants to lay, that that corrupt heart leads to a corrupt will, which leads to corrupt actions, and that the heart has to be renewed. New desires have to be given to us, and that's what the Holy Spirit has been doing. That's what all of the first part of Ephesians is about, is the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our hearts and wills and minds. That we would put off that old man. That we get here to this place of command, put off the old man and put on the new self so that you can act by your love and change the thoughts in your mind more and more toward the Father. One of the things I've thought about as I've been thinking about this sermon was that aspect of how our actions shape our thoughts. And this begins to dig into what Paul then turns to in verses 25 to the end of where we drop off tonight, today. As he starts talking about actions and how to live life, I made me think about years and years ago when I worked at Walmart, how I was avoided using bad language, using coarse language, cussing in front of people. I worked hard not to do that. But eventually I gave in and started cussing more and more. And I came to think at one time that cussing wasn't so bad, but as I just embraced that coarse language more and more, my mind just accepted it. My mind was, became more and more okay, justifying that it's okay to talk like that. My actions led to a change in my mind. We don't realize how much our actions really do affect our thoughts. And Paul brings us to think about those things in 25 through 31 especially. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul gives us these three examples of how to live in light of the work of Christ for us. We may sit here and think like, well, how much of that really applies to me? But let's just take a moment and just meditate on it. Put away falsehood. Speak truth with your neighbor for you are members of one another. Here, neighbor is especially geared toward the fellow members of the church. For we are members of one another. We are united to each other in Christ. We are bound up with one another. And so Paul says, put away falsehood. Speak truth with one another. Be genuine with one another. Be honest with each other. For we are members of one another. It's based on the fact that we are drawn together and united with each other, that we speak the truth and love to one another. As he says later on in verse 29, that it may give grace, that it would be good for building up. We speak truth and don't let corrupt talk come out of our mouths in order to build up the church, in order to give grace to those around us. And as we speak that truth, he says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is a dangerous emotion. It's so easy to get caught up in it, to let it run roughshod over who we are and run roughshod over everyone else. But here Paul says, be angry and do not sin, quoting from Proverbs. He's not commanding us to be angry all the time, but he says, in your anger, don't sin. Let it be rightfully used. Let it be the right kind of anger. Let it be righteous anger. Check that anger that you may be feeling about life, the frustrations that you feel creeping into your life. Check it. And ask, is this self-serving anger? Is this because someone insulted me? Is this because someone's done something I don't like? Is that why I'm angry with this person? Or is there a genuine desire to see someone else be drawn to the Lord and that it's frustrating to see me constant to see someone constantly making the wrong decisions? But that anger isn't at that person. It's, ang it's anger at the fact that they aren't recognizing the Lord that you desire them to see. So turn that anger toward prayer. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Give it away. Put it away if it's not righteous, if it's only self-serving. But if there's legitimate struggles between you and someone else that creates anger, go to them and talk to them. Don't let it stay inside of you. For that will give an opportunity to the devil for anger to remain within, for anger to lay hold of your heart and your mind. It will turn you from the Lord. Then he turns to the thief to no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The thief steals in order to build up himself. He steals in order to gain more for himself. And Paul says, stop doing that. Go out and labor. Go do good. Work with your hands honestly, and that will let you have something to give to someone else. You once took from others, now give back to them. Lay aside what you earn in order to give away some of it. I'm sure not many of us are literal thieves in our lives. I've stolen a few things in my day. I told one story years ago about me stealing a candy bar from an old local shop and my dad dragging me back into that shop and making me give it back to the cashier. 
but we are told to no longer still. It's so easy for us to still in so many slight and little ways. We might not be stealing from our neighbors directly going into their homes and taking their TVs or their VCRs, excuse me, DVD players and Blu-ray players and computers. I don't think we have VCRs anymore. But we still in other ways, we still by not giving of ourselves to those people. We still by not serving the church. We still by becoming self-absorbed and not looking outward to opportunities to give our gifts to others, to serve others, to share with others what the Lord has done in us. We still, as we, don't share the goods the Lord has given us with the church. We aren't communists, but we are called to give away what the Lord has given to us, to steward it well, to share of the wealth that the Lord has given us in abundance with those in need in the church especially. And so as we work and do honest labor, let us make it a part of our lives to set aside a piece of that, to share with those in need, to be prepared in advance, to not be caught off guard with need, but to set aside something prior, knowing that there will be someone in need, the church will be in need, and we'll have something ready to give, ready to share, ready to set aside for the sake of the kingdom. Paul commands the thieves to do this. How much more should we embrace that command to begin setting aside a part of ourselves, always in preparation, a part of what the God has given us in his kingdom, for he owns everything and has stewarded, stewarded it to us, given it to us to be good stewards, to take aside a piece of it in preparation for returning it to those who need it, and thus returning it to the Lord. As he said in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, just as we are to speak the truth without falsehood. Again, to build up the church. All of this is for building up the church that we are called to love. For as our hearts have been renewed, we not only love God, but we love the people of God. We love the church that he has given to us. This universal church that stretches across the world and back through time and on into the future, we are called to love her as we love the Lord. And so our life is to be centered on building the church, building up the church, building up the people, looking to them to make their lives better, to draw them nearer to the Lord. And then they look to us and draw us nearer to the Lord. Instead of pursuing our own ends and goals, we pursue the church's goal. We pursue the goal of sharing, of building up, of loving and speaking kindly and showing the grace of the Lord that we have received. And finally, here in verse 30, Paul wraps up this chapter and says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve this person of God, the third person of the Trinity, who has sealed you, who dwells in you, who dwells in the church at large. Do not grieve him by doing that which you have been called away from. Do not grieve him by refusing to give your love to the Father and to the Son and to him. Do not grieve him by refusing to love the church. Do not grieve him by continuing to still, by continuing to speak falsely. Do not grieve him by continuing to live with the old man, letting him call the shots, letting his desires lead and guide you. 
but let the Spirit work. Receive the Spirit's work. Embrace the Spirit's work. Because He has sealed you for the day of redemption. He has come and rested upon you and changed you and sealed you. And so Paul gives again as an example, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Those are things that will grieve the Spirit. The bitterness that flows out of anger, the wrath that flows out of anger, the clamor and the slander that will flow out of our hatred of our neighbor, and malice. Everything that Paul is writing there is about our treatment of our neighbor, not loving our neighbor, but showing hatred and despising him. That is grieving to the spirit because that's what the old man does because the old man serves self and not neighbor. The old man serves self and not God. And so Paul says, put away your bitterness, put away your wrath and anger and your slander. Put away the malice and hatred. And instead, replace it with kindness, tenderheartedness. And how does kindness and tenderheartedness show up in our lives? It shows up by forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. The way to let go of bitterness and to put it away is to be kind to the church, to be kind to our neighbor, to be kind to our family, to be tenderhearted, to be understanding in the brokenness that they are experiencing, that we work toward forgiveness because God has forgiven us in Christ. God has taken our sins away from us. And so we strive toward forgiveness with others. We don't act in bitter ways. We don't act in wrathful ways because God has turned away from His wrath by pouring it onto the Son. And for all the brokenness that exists in our relationships, that brokenness has been poured upon the Son. That sin that exists has been poured upon the Son. And so we strive toward forgiveness. We strive toward restoration. Of course, we always remember that's a two-way street. We can extend forgiveness to someone, but they can reject it. They can turn away from it. They can refuse reconciliation by refusing to see their own sin. But nonetheless, we continue to extend that forgiveness toward them in the hopes that they will turn and repent and be restored back to the Father through our extension of, that fa of our Father's forgiveness in Christ. <laughs> and again, that doesn't mean continually receiving the sins of another against us. We do walk away and separate ourselves when others are sinning against us and refuse to stop sinning against us. We put space and we step away in order to protect ourselves, in order to grow nearer to Christ, in order to grow nearer to God, in order to not be destroyed by another person's sin. But we still extend kindness. As often as we are able, we continue to let forgiveness be there between us and the other person. And we call them back to Christ. We call them toward Christ to know that forgiveness. And all of that is summed up in Paul's last words that we read this morning. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love calls forth love. God has loved us as his children and made us his children, and so he calls forth love out of us that we could imitate him. And we walk in love, our actions reflect the love within because Christ has loved us. The heart is the guiding principle here. 
God's love for us in Christ renews our hearts so that we might love him and those around us. And I love how Paul says, as beloved children. Think of your own children, those of us who have children. Were they perfect at the beginning? Could they do the things that we call them to do perfectly? No, they couldn't. But as we extended love and grace to them, as they were growing to understand more and more, they grow and come to see, hey, I'm not doing what I've been called to do. And I turn from that not doing it right and strive toward doing it the way that I've been taught. Our children strive to imitate us as they are learning, and they don't do it right often. But we continue to pour our love upon them that they would turn from those ways and grow and improve and become better imitators of us. And that is what Paul is saying, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're not going to do it perfectly, certainly not at the beginning and certainly not at the end with the way sin is in us. We'll be better at the end, I hope and pray. But God continues to love us that we would turn from our lack of imitation more and more day in and day out because Christ has loved us and the Father loves us in Christ. And so that love that he pours upon us calls forth love out of us back toward himself. And we're changed and begin that process of becoming imitators more and more of him because our hearts are loving him. The foundation is the heart. The foundation is that affection so that we can be guided nearer to him, that our wills would act in the way that he has called us to, that our minds would think in the way that he has called it to, to be renewed more and more and more. That beautiful cyclical effect, as our heart loves more, our wills act more, and our minds think more, which leads to greater love in our hearts, which leads to greater and more proper action, which leads to greater and better thoughts. Back and forth, round and round, as we are lifted more and more according to our Lord. As we are embraced more and more as beloved children of our Father. And so we follow after Him. We let go of the corruption because our hearts are new in Christ. And our wills are renewed by Christ. And our actions and our minds are renewed by Christ. This is the work of the Lord in you. Rejoice at the work the Lord is doing and confess where it is not taking effect. Confess and repent and turn back to the Lord and return to your love of the Lord as your foundation and receive His forgiveness once more and renewal once more as He changes your heart more and more as you draw near to Him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.